Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Treatment Update in Oral and Head and Neck Cancer. And today's program is a partnership with the um, the Oral and Head and Neck Cancer Organization, and we're really delighted to be partnering with them on this program today. And um, it's really a great pleasure, and you'll be hearing more about um, their, what they offer and all their activities that they offer as well. Today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Um, now, we have uh, wonderful participants on the program today. We have over 253 participants on the call today who come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Ecuador, Iraq, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well, and it's really um, we're delighted to have um, all of you on the call today. It's really um, just a, a great pleasure to have you with us. Um, and um, before I introduce our first speaker, I'm going to um, ask all of you just a few questions um, before we start, just to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. So we're going to start with the questions first. Um, and um, so our first question is, and on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand surgical interventions, including plastic and reconstructive surgery for oral and head and neck cancers in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new chemotherapy options, including concurrent chemotherapy and radiotherapy in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know the important role of clinical trials for oral and head and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. Um, the next question is, I know how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for oral and head and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, I know the recommended guidelines and tips for the care of teeth, gums, and mouth before, during, and after treatment for oral and head and neck cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I very much want to thank you all for participating in addressing, answering these questions, it really helps us to better plan programs going forward to get your feedback up front in terms of what you know so we can better plan programs to meet your needs. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker for today. And our first speaker today is Dr. Terry Day. Dr. Day is the Wendy and Keith Wellen Endowed Chair in Head and Neck Surgery, Professor and Director, Division of Head and Neck Oncologic Surgery, Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs, Medical University of South Carolina, Hollings Cancer Center. And Dr. Day will be addressing overview of head and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19, including staging and diagnosing. 
Key questions in making treatment decisions. Surgical interventions, including plastic and reconstructive surgery in the context of COVID-19. And the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be a part of uh, this webinar today, and uh, we've got a, a busy task set out for us. So uh, I'd first like to start by thanking Cancer Care and the other esteemed panelists and the sponsors for the commitment to the patients and families and all of families and friends that are affected by head and neck cancer. As we embark on this second year of the pandemic, our thoughts and prayers remain with all of those affected by COVID-19. When I think back to the last webinar we did in the spring of 2020, I'm reminded of how much the world has changed in only one year. The year 2020 forced every aspect of human life, government, society, and healthcare to adapt, and the treatment of head and neck cancer is no exception. For reference, worldwide COVID-19 deaths are around 3 million in one year. Meanwhile, there's an estimated 10 million cancer deaths in 2020. And this is predicted to increase to 16 million by 2040. So, in 2020, the world rapidly addressed the challenge with more vaccines in one year than ever in history. And so, we've proven we can accomplish unattainable goals faster than predicted. My hope is that this will happen to all forms of cancer and importantly, head and neck cancer, due to the visible and functional impact it has on the lives of our patients and the family members around them. I'd like to acknowledge one of our research fellows, Dr. Keith Conti, who has participated in this presentation and some of the research that backs it up. First, I'm going to cover the overview of head and neck cancer. And this is for those who are new to it or newly diagnosed or have family members. And it's really crucial to begin, and I cannot overemphasize this statement, which is my take-home point at the very end. To be treated appropriately for head and neck cancer, you've got to have a multidisciplinary approach, and that includes a specialist in chemotherapy, which also includes immunotherapy, radiation therapy, head and neck surgery, dental and prosthodontics, speech and language pathology, nursing, nutrition, reconstructive surgery, radiology, pathology, endocrinology, psychology, survivorship and palliative care, social work, and clinical trials, among others. And you can see this is exemplified by the diverse array of panelists you'll hear from today. So I'm going to simplify head and neck cancer into three broad categories for an introduction here. Head and neck cancers, I'm mostly talking about squamous cell cancer, of the mucosal site, so the lining of the inside of the mouth, the throat, and the voice box. So those three broad categories are going to be the mouth, the throat, and the voice box. So mouth or oral cancers are typically in the mouth and visible with a light by a physician or dentist. Now the next two, throat and voice box, usually need a lighted scope attached to a camera to identify where the tumor started. Throat cancers are also termed pharyngeal cancers, and these are usually back behind the mouth and may or may not be visible to a family physician or dentist because they're too far back. The other ones, the voice box cancers, are called laryngeal cancers. These are often from tobacco and smoking and visible with lighted cameras on endoscopes, usually in an ENT doctor's office. And just to clarify, oral cancer... When I say oral cancer, mouth cancer, it is not the same as oropharyngeal cancer. They might sound the same. They are not the same. Mouth cancers are typically from tobacco. Oropharyngeal cancers are typically from HPV or human papillomavirus. It's important to note that there is now a vaccine for human papillomavirus for boys, girls, men, and women. And if you have questions, please seek out your primary care physician, pediatrician, to get more information on that vaccine. So next I'm going to cover diagnosis and staging. For diagnosis, when cancer is diagnosed, and I'm going to break these down into the three I talked about, mouth cancer typically has a red or white patch in the mouth that doesn't heal after two weeks. Throat cancer 
there's usually a lump in the neck on the outside or in the throat on the inside, sore throat, bleeding, trouble swallowing, or earache. Voice box cancer. These are usually diagnosed when somebody has a change in their voice or hoarseness or trouble swallowing. Now, what happens after you're diagnosed? For head and neck cancer, patients usually get a CAT scan and a biopsy to confirm what it is and where it is. Some patients may undergo additional scanning, like PET scan, to look for cancer spread throughout the body. And the next part, the patient will be given what's called a clinical stage of the tumor, and that stage is also predictive of the right treatment. So I'm going to go into the staging briefly here, and staging is typically from the American Joint Commission on Cancer, AJCC, and it's broken down into the letters T, N, and M. T stands for tumor or where the cancer started. N, as in Nancy, stands for nodes or lymph nodes in the head and neck region. And M stands for metastasis or spread beyond the head and neck region. Now next I'm going to go into an overview of surgical interventions with regard to head and neck cancer. In general, for oral cancer or mouth cancer, surgery is the preferred treatment regardless of stage. Now for early stage, one or two, typically surgery is the only treatment needed. For advanced stage, surgery is usually followed by radiation treatments to provide the best cure rates. Now, in oropharyngeal cancers, especially those HPV-associated, these can be treated equally in early stage with surgery or radiation. One of the emerging treatments for early stage oropharyngeal cancer is robotic surgery through the mouth without any incisions anywhere outside of the mouth, and that can be provided for early stage oropharyngeal cancer. On the other hand, for late stage, stage three or four, it's usually two treatments, surgery and radiation, or radiation with chemotherapy. Now, when we're doing surgery, typically surgery requires removal of all of the tumor where it started, in the mouth, throat, or voice box. And in many cases, it also includes removal of the lymph nodes that drain the tumor, and that's called a neck dissection. One thing to understand is that nowadays we're able to reconstruct and rebuild the tongue, the face, the throat, the voice box in many cases with what's called free tissue transfer or free flap, which is in a sense a transplant from the patient's own body to the tongue or mouth or throat or neck to rebuild that area with similar tissue. Now I'm going to go briefly into COVID-19 and telemedicine. And as we all know, COVID presented very unique and rapid challenges. We had cancer patients wanting to come in at the outset of COVID and all of the policies and regulatory uh, things were changing and we weren't sure how to handle the cancer patients. And many patients were scared to come in because of the risk of being exposed to COVID-19. So what happened? a lot of telehealth and virtual visits began to happen so we could still rapidly get the patient discussed and treated and we then took those discussions to our tumor conference which also became virtual online and many people are aware that this did expedite discussions of the patient and there's a lot of literature out available that showed the advantages and disadvantages of this but in a sense, head and neck cancer patients still needed to be treated and there was no reason to delay them. We just had to adapt to the protocols to make it safe for the patient, their family, and the staff in the hospital. So we highly recommend do not delay your cancer treatment because you're worried about COVID. We now have protocols in place at most hospitals to prevent high risk of exposure. So telemedicine has changed how we do things. I imagine it's here to stay. I also know that we're, there's a lot of research going on to prove where it helped and where it didn't help. So in summary, I'm going to go into the key questions in making treatment decisions, and this is my take-home point. Do not forget, multidisciplinary input is crucial. A surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, a dentist, and a speech therapist have to be a part 
of every treatment regimen. Please refer to the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN, and AJCC for information not only on staging, but guidelines for your cancer treatment. So in summary, do not delay your cancer treatment, even during a pandemic, and seek multidisciplinary care. Thanks to all the presenters and participants. I know I went over a little bit. I apologize sincerely. It was a lot to cover. Uh, but thanks for everybody attending, and good luck with your care. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Day. That was an excellent, really, overview and really presentation on, um, on setting the stage for this whole program. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowicz. And Dr. Misikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And uh, Dr. Misikowicz will be addressing new chemotherapy options, concurrent chemotherapy and radi radiotherapy in the context of COVID-19, the role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19, and managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Misikowicz. Uh, so, hello, everybody. I just want to welcome everybody and thank the, the, um, the organizers for putting these presentations, and we've been doing this for many, many years. So it's an absolute privilege and honor to, to be able to put up this expensive panel. Um, so, I'm going to be covering the chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and radiation in the context of head and neck cancer uh, and COVID-19. So uh, we have those three tools, as I can call them, that we use in treatment of head and neck cancer. One of them is chemotherapy. And obviously chemotherapy we know pretty well from maybe friends or maybe some family members that um, uh, they, be, they were treated with. So we know that the chemotherapy is sort of like a poison that we're trying to use to poison the cancer. And one of the side effects of the chemotherapy is that it can weaken your immune system. So obviously, especially in the COVID-19, can make you uh, immunocompromised. So you can be a little bit more sensitive to catch the infection. So have the infection normally would, uh, would give you new symptoms can be more dangerous. So just put it on the side. The second tool that we have is radiation. So radiation is the machine that kind of zaps the cancer or burns the cancer. But unfortunately, one of the side effects is also uh, that it can weaken the immune system. So it's very similar when it comes to the side effect with chemotherapy. And then there's a third tool that we use. It's called immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is that as of now, your cancer is invisible. Your body is kind of being tricked or your body is being blind and your body cannot see the cancer. So that the purpose of the immunotherapy is, is to stimulate the immune system so your own body all of a sudden can see the cancer. And obviously, by stimulating the immune system, your body can fight with the cancer. But something that I have to mention between those three tools, because you can, you can think, if I'm going to stimulate somebody's immune system, maybe it's going to give this patient the tools to fight because your immune system is going to be stronger with COVID-19 or any other infection, and unfortunately not. We stimulate the body to fight with the cancer, but unfortunately there's no data to prove that it's giving you any extra protection from the COVID-19. So, and actually what we know about COVID-19, that many times patients, they have problems with the infection, or they kind of hospitalized, not because of the infection, but how your body is responding to the infection, how your immune system sometimes is too strong with its response causing some damages. So as you can see, all those treatments can put you in the high risk of having complications if, God forbid, one of you is going to catch the COVID-19. But whether you're in the situation that you're about to start those treatments, whether you're considering those treatments, I'm going to say one personal story. Um, and as you know, I'm, you know, head and neck physician, but in March or April of last year, I was deployed to, to, to cover the COVID-19 patients. So I had a direct contact. I was not doing cancer head and neck during this peak time. All of us, probably surgeons, pathologists, we were treating COVID-19 patients. And from the time that I was deployed now, and obviously I have the incidental contact with the COVID-19 patients, I never got sick. So what I'm trying to prove. I never caught the COVID-19 because I followed those strict rules, which are you have to do the hand washing, you have to wear the mask. 
So what I'm trying to say, if you're going to use those very strict strategies when it comes to protecting yourself from catching the infection, even if you're going to be uh, undergoing chemotherapy and radiation immunotherapy, you should be relatively safe and protecting yourself from the COVID-19 infection. So not me, not my family members, not my son who is eight years old and he goes to, to school, um, obviously, none of them got the COVID-19 because I'm strict with myself and my family is strict when it comes to those rules. And as an example, I can tell you that obviously, whenever your mask goes down during lunch, during some kind of moments, as I call them the moments of weakness, this is the time when you can catch it. And if you're going to really be able to control your safe, I think you should be relatively fine. So consequently, it shouldn't delay your treatment. So... It's extremely important because whenever you're going to be undergoing any treatment for head and neck cancer, and I mentioned that we use chemotherapy, radiation, and immunotherapy. When patients undergo chemotherapy and radiation, it's extremely important that this treatment is delivered on time. You have certain time frame when this treatment can be initiated. For example, if the patient undergoes the surgery, and the treatment with chemotherapy is considered, this treatment should be initiated the latest six to eight weeks from the date of the surgery. If it's being delayed, then the benefit kind of goes down. So having this in mind, I always have to encourage you to protect yourself, wearing the mask, wash your hands, to make sure that the treatments are going to be delayed. The second thing that we know, if somebody is already undergoing chemotherapy and radiation, any gaps in the treatment, because the chemotherapy radiation, the way it's done, it's done Monday to Friday every day for about six to seven weeks. If somebody has some gaps in the treatment, then we know those patients, they do worse. And obviously, sometimes it's unavoidable. There's some other reason that we cannot control for that the treatment has to be stopped, has to be put on halt. But I, again, encourage you that you have to protect yourself and follow those rules, and I know it's hard, to make sure that this treatment is going to be delivered on time. So again, protect yourself. And to kind of give you the metaphoric explanation of this, it's sort of like when you go to the goat and you're trying to remove the weed, you're trying to remove the roots. Because if you're going to leave the tiny root behind, this root can turn to a cancer. So that's why the treatment has to be delivered with no gaps, but you have to get the entire treatment to make sure that the entire cancer was removed or burned from your body. So this is to protect yourself. I think the second question that we have when it comes to the COVID-19, should we get vaccinated? And when should we get vaccinated? So I would say, yes, you should get vaccinated. And obviously, if the vaccine can be given before the treatment or after the treatment, then obviously, yes, I think it's a better time. Because you want to make sure that your immune system is fully operational. But at the same time, uh, there is a second question patient they ask, which of those vaccines is the best? And I would say the best vaccine is the one that is available. And obviously, because we have the international group, and maybe in your country, they have a different panel of the vaccines, and maybe there are some restrictions. The next available, I think, is the best vaccine. When it comes to administration, I would say, with your physician, if you're in a region that the COVID vaccine um, uh, infection is kind of under good control, maybe, obviously, maybe your vaccine can be delayed because you're going to be relatively fine and safe. But at the same time, obviously, if you're in the region that the COVID vaccine infection rate is high, maybe you should consider, obviously, with your physician, because they know the dynamic of the cancer, if you should be vaccinated before initiating any treatment. And you can be in different kind of a situation. You can have a chance to have a Johnson Johnson vaccine that is just one dose. You can be in the situation that you just got the first dose of any other vaccine, you're about to get the second dose, so maybe it's worth waiting just one week. Or maybe you haven't got any vaccine. And the question is, do I want to wait a month? And many times, unfortunately, we don't have the luxury. And you have to obviously discuss it with your physician because you want to make sure that this vaccine is going to be effective. But at the same time, giving you the first example that I used, I've been, ex I've been exposed to COVID-19 patients. I was so close to them. You cannot be closer. And with appropriate protection, I never get sick. So I would say 
as long as you're going to follow those rules, I think you should be fine. And even now, as you can imagine with my specialty, when I examine the patient, I'm relatively close to their nose, I'm relatively close to their mouth, but I always protect myself. I put the mask, I put the goggles, I wash my hands, I, pro I had the proper gown. So I always try to protect myself because obviously I want to protect myself, my family, and some other patients. And as of now, because I'm so strict with myself, I never get sick. And I think if you're going to follow those rules, I think you should be fine. So I would say vaccinate, use the mask, wash your hands, and try not to delay your treatment. And I think you should be fine as long as you're going to follow those rules. So what kind of treatments we have? So I mentioned that we have radiation. I mentioned that we have chemotherapy. And I mentioned that we have immunotherapy. So as of now, as we're going to divide the cancer into three categories that I mentioned before, you have the local disease that many times is treated with single modality, which is the surgery or radiation. We have locally advanced disease when the cancer is a little bit bigger. Then we use chemotherapy and radiation and sometimes surgery. As of now, immunotherapy is not FDA approved, so we don't know what is the role of immunotherapy in locally advanced settings. But there are multiple trials as of now that they are added into chemotherapy, they're replacing the chemotherapy when it's given radiation, or they're given after the chemotherapy and radiation as a maintenance. And obviously, some data looks promising, so I would encourage you to participate in those trials because, as an example, even a few days ago, I saw the patient who was in a clinical trial about three or four years ago. She had a metastatic cancer, and she's fine, and there is no evidence of cancer. And this is because she participated in the trial. At that time, this drug was not commercially available, and now she, she gets the benefit. So I would encourage you strongly to consider a clinical trial. And then we have the third category, when the cancer is unresectable and the cancer has spread, so we call it metastatic. And as of now, we have two treatments, two kinds of treatments that we can use, and this is chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Sometimes we use them alone, sometimes we use them in combination. And obviously, immunotherapy is a very good treatment because it's not very toxic. It still has some toxicity, but relatively speaking, people, the tolerance of the immunotherapy is pretty good. It's given intravenously. And many times it's so successful that obviously we can obviously treat patients for a prolonged period of time, still have the response from the treatment, and subject patients to minimal side effects so they can have relatively good quality of life. But sometimes we have to use them in combination. So what are the future directions? and in recurrent metastatic settings. Obviously, I would still encourage you to participate in clinical trials. And what are the other modalities or what are the other directions, obviously, of this research? One of them, for example, is we use one immunotherapy agent. It's called PD-1 inhibitors. And we have two drugs approved. We have nivolumab, Optivo, or we have Keytruda, which is membrolizumab, approved in head and a cancer. But we as doctors, obviously, we want to get better results. We want to cure more people. Or we want to have the response in more, more of our patients. So obviously, we're kind of trying to find the best combination. What can be added into those immunotherapy agents? Can we add another immunotherapy agent? Can we add another chemotherapy agent or sometimes even vaccine to make the cancer more visible? And obviously, there are a large plethora of clinical trials that you can be part of, and they're really promising they giving you the cutting-edge treatment. And even now, actually, as I'm sitting here, I'm about to consent a patient for a clinical trial because I'm hoping to give him, give him better results. So, and the second direction is that I mentioned the combination. The second direction is we want to learn how to select patients for different clinical trials, and it's called biomarkers. So we're kind of looking for some kind of features that your cancer has or something that maybe you have that's going to make us wiser and it's going to make us more confident when it comes to selection. Maybe the patient A should get a treatment A, patient B treatment B. So we call them biomarkers. So those are the tools. But we're not going to be able to make any progress without your participation. So I would say the key message is protect yourself, be vaccinate yourself, 
Don't delay your treatment. We're here to help. We as physicians with telemedicine um, and even in person, obviously, proper gear that we wear, we're not going to expose you to those infections. And I think you shouldn't delay your treatment. And the key message number four is don't be afraid to participate in the clinical trials because those are the cutting-edge medicines that can give you better results. Thank you very much for your attention. And by the way, I got vaccinated. I never get sick. So I hope that you're going to have the same outcome. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Misikowitz, and thank you both for the wonderful information you provided, and also from your personal experience as well in terms of reassuring people that it is perfectly safe to come in for treatment and that indeed um, to work with their healthcare team and to really um, access cutting-edge treatment for themselves. That's really important. So thank you very much. Uh, excellent presentation. Thank you. Um, um, and our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Peterson. Dr. Dr. Peterson is Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine, Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, NAIC Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Peterson will be addressing guidelines and tips for the care of your teeth, gums, and mouth before, during, and after cancer treatment speech and swallowing rehabilitation, the importance of communicating with your healthcare team, key questions to ask about your quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and making your list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Peterson. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, my privilege to be here as well. And I'd also like to thank my other colleagues uh, also for providing really such an excellent foundation for my, my comments. And even with the uh, tremendous challenges that COVID-19 has been facing us for uh, over a year now, um, it, it, it continues to be so important that comprehensive, high-quality cancer care, including medically necessary dental treatment that I'll be addressing, uh, that we achieve that and we work together as a team to have very positive outcomes. And uh, the dental team, just as with the rest of the healthcare team, has very safe and effective ways to help you with this treatment, even during the COVID pandemic. And the goal of the medically necessary dental management is to prevent, ideally, or at least minimize any problems with your mouth during and in the years after your cancer treatment ends. And I'll be summarizing some of these approaches in the next few minutes. I'd ask you to think about the big picture that we're discussing today as a, as a group, and that is that high-quality cancer care that includes curative care and high-quality supportive care, such as mouth care, very much contributes to overall cancer treatment outcomes. So it's really a combination of curative cancer treatment and supportive care to help that curative cancer treatment uh, that makes all the difference in the world. Now, as far as some of the guidelines and tips for care of the teeth and the gums and the mouth, including the lining tissues of the mouth that Dr. Day mentioned, uh, the oral mucosa, there are uh, exciting and, and current, uh, very uh, quite available ways to treat head and neck cancer. And uh, uh, my colleagues, Drs. Day and Misikowitz, have done an elegant uh, review of some of those uh, very exciting surgical, radiation, and chemotherapeutic, immunotherapeutic advances. And these state-of-the-art treatments go a very long way toward reducing some of the mouth complications as well while achieving the cancer cures that we all uh, wish to achieve. Now, having said this, uh, there are certain cancer treatments, and in the interest of time, I'm going to focus on head and neck radiation uh, with or without chemotherapy that can cause temporary or even sometimes permanent changes in the mouth, including the teeth and the gums and the oral mucosa, the lining tissue that we talked about, as well as the salivary glands, which are also very important in preserving um, health in your mouth. So let me just touch on a little bit of this. It's very important that during the initial evaluation of the cancer and the plans for the treatment, that there be a thorough dental evaluation and discussion with the dental member of the cancer team before the head and head cancer treatment uh, starts. 
this can very much make a difference during your upcoming cancer therapy and in the years after you complete that treatment. So what happens is the dental team uh, does a thorough evaluation of your mouth and then coordinates any recommendations that are medically necessary for your upcoming cancer treatment, for example, surgery or radiation or chemotherapy or immunotherapy. We coordinate that uh, decision-making with the overall cancer team. We discuss it with you, and then, of course, we honor your wishes. And we have specialized uh, clinical dental settings in which we can perform this medically necessary dental care as well. So it's not just the evaluation and the discussion with the cancer team and, and you, but if medically necessary dental treatment is needed, we have very uh, safe, uh, protected ways during the COVID pandemic to treat you so that the risk of developing a COVID infection is essentially zero. Now, as far as some of the speech and swallowing rehabilitation issues, uh, this too is a subject uh, unto itself. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to focus on uh, one aspect of this. But again, all of these issues can be discussed with your cancer care colleagues as well as your uh, cancer care team. And what we see in many patients who have head and neck radiation sometimes during, but often after the head and neck radiation, depending on where the radiation is given. If it involves some of the major salivary glands in the sides of the cheek, uh, under the tongue, for example, that can cause either temporary or lifelong dryness because the radiation injures the salivary tissues. And this is important because normal saliva is very important in helping protect the health of your mouth, including the teeth and the gums and the mucosa, the lining tissue. So once we know where the radiation is being given, we will then customize our dental treatment plan in relation to either eliminating any riskful sites. If there's a deep cavity, for example, or some severe gum disease, we'll work with you and the rest of the team to address that. And it all becomes very, very important that uh, the oncologist, the oncology nurse, the, the dentist such as myself, the dietitian, uh, such as we'll hear about from my colleague uh, Diana Bearden in just a moment, speech pathology and many others, work together to minimize mouth dryness caused by the radiation. And if it does occur, there are strategies that we can recommend to protect your mouth during the time when your mouth is very, very dry. So the dry mouth and the swallowing and speech uh, issues are yet another example of how important it is to have that interprofessional team that, that Drs. Day and Ms. Sikowitz were talking about. Now, if you have a dry mouth uh, because of the radiation, whether it's temporary or for the rest of your life, many years, uh, I'd like to specifically emphasize the importance of two things. I mean, there's a lot behind this, but two takeaways that I'd like to emphasize with dry mouth is make sure that your diet is low in sugar content in order to reduce the risk of developing dental cavities over time. So again, if your mouth is dry and the saliva is not... Uh, doing all of its protection that we would like it to do because of the dryness, it's even more important that you have a healthy diet and one that's low in sugar. And again, your dietitian, uh, your, your dental medicine specialist, your oncology team can help you with that. And then it's also important, in addition to having that initial dental evaluation before the cancer treatment that I talked about, to have ongoing, regularly scheduled dental evaluations after your cancer treatment ends, really for the rest of your life. Uh, this is all designed to prevent problems from developing in your mouth. It could become uh, of some clinical consequence. And if something does begin to change and some mouth condition begins to break down, we're there to help at a very early stage. And it's just a lot easier and uh, better if we can treat something at a very, very early stage. So low sugar content for your diets and regular dental evaluations as part of the cancer care management well after your cancer treatment has ended. And I'll defer to my colleague, Ms. Bearden, for her expert advice relative to uh, nutrition and hydration as well. 
I'd also like to uh, begin to finish with the importance of communicating and uh, asking questions about your quality of life. And I think that links very well to the other point that uh, Carolyn asked me to address relative to telehealth and telemedicine. So as we've mentioned uh, throughout our time together uh, uh, several times now, it's really important to continually communicate with your healthcare team before and during and in the years after your treatment. And, and the, this communication can take place in several ways, including uh, your in-person appointments that uh, uh, historically have been the foundation, as well as telehealth and telemedicine uh, that has been, uh, as Dr. Day mentioned, increasingly important, particularly during COVID. And, and you know, it's very interesting. Um, the opportunities to use telehealth and telemedicine in healthcare have been around for a few decades, really. And it started with the initial development of uh, this technology to help in the healthcare of astronauts when they were in space back in the 1980s and 1990s, for example. But certainly the COVID pandemic has very much focused and increased the use of this technology and has really led to considerable opportunity for uh, cancer patients as well as healthcare providers. So it's a very exciting uh, technology and as Dr. Day mentioned, uh, we're going to take the best of this and continue with it uh, well after the pandemic is over. So just a few key points to think about with telemedicine. It's been demonstrated to be highly effective. Uh, there's more research being done, as Dr. Masikowicz mentioned, and including um, uh, some of the advantages that we're seeing are increasing the access to care uh, by more patients while reducing the cost of that care as well as uh, reducing or uh, helping us manage some of the logistical issues, such as transportation. So telemedicine has been very advantageous in that way. And it's widely applicable, ranging from uh, genetic counseling and cancer telegenetics and telepathology to even um, uh, performing remote chemotherapy supervision, uh, helping with symptom management, survivorship care, and access to clinical trials that Dr. Masikowicz mentioned as well. So it's, it's very important to discuss these opportunities with your cancer team, including the type of technology. There's many different types of technology that can be used. And find the way that fits best with your approach, one that you're most comfortable with, and, and that will help us customize your specific healthcare needs, either in person or through telemedicine. And as always, uh, whether you're having an in-person or a telemedicine appointment, uh, be ready with your comments and questions, such as uh, be ready to discuss your most recent symptoms. How have you been feeling since your last healthcare evaluation? Have you had any new symptoms? Uh, what are, what's the best next step? Should I come in for a very safe, COVID-centered, uh, uh, protected uh, evaluation, or should I continue with telemedicine? And then, of course, any additional comments or questions that you may have about uh, your cancer or its treatment. So telemedicine, uh, telehealth, very exciting technology. Discuss it uh, thoroughly with your healthcare team, and it can be very, very uh, helpful. So in closing, uh, the team approach to cancer care that we've been talking about provides the greatest opportunity for highly successful treatment outcomes. And the, the big picture is that that high-quality supportive care that we've been talking about these last few minutes, such as mouth care, significantly elevates the type of overall excellent cancer care that you'll be receiving from your team. So please discuss any of the questions or concerns that you might have with those of us on your team. So. Uh, taking this approach will very much in, enhance your quality of life during and in the years following your state-of-the-art cancer treatment. I certainly wish you all the best and, uh, again, thank Cancer Care for this opportunity. Carolyn, I'll turn uh, the podium to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. That was really superb, just a wonderful presentation, um, really um, so much wonderful information that you delivered to everybody. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing the role of the oncology dietitian and nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but to your quality of life. 
your diet might be modified during treatment um, or even after treatment based on what you go through for your individual care. But the goal of the dietitian is to help support you with finding what works for you to meet your nutritional goals um, during and after cancer care. So possible side effects, we've heard a few already today, but um, just to recap, there can be side effects such as um, a loss or change in taste. There's definitely an issue a lot of times with dry mouth, just depending on your treatment. Um, decreased appetite, there can be nausea, vomiting, thick saliva or sores in your mouth or even a sore mouth, and sometimes difficulty chewing as some treatment plans require dental extractions prior to the treatment. There can also be challenges with swallowing, um, pain with swallowing, and weight loss. There's a lot of different possible side effects, and each person responds very differently to treatment. The um, most important thing, and we've already heard this today a couple of times, um, if not more, is please communicate with your healthcare team. Each one of the patients who walk in our doors um, <clears throat> have a unique experience during their treatment. And although we as healthcare professionals have a very good understanding of the possible side effects you can go through um, during this time, we want to hear from you specifically. So some things may be more significant for you. Some things may not be as significant. If we aren't asking those questions, speak up and tell us, hey, um, you didn't ask me about this, but I'm also experiencing this. I don't know if it's something that I need to be concerned about, but I want to bring it to your attention. We want you to do that. During your treatment, um, your nutritional goals can change. Again, not just by um, how you experience the treatment and your side effects, but there can also be um, some elevated, sometimes where your nutritional goals are, are higher than others. And what I mean by that is um, sometimes if we're seeing weight loss occur, um, if you're um, you know, losing weight, not getting enough of hydration, maybe a medication or a side effect from another drug might be requiring more fluid. Um, those are all sorts of things that we can help support you with, but it's important for us to talk with you about on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So those things may change during your treatment. Um, there may be even a need for you to change the texture of your diet. Um, possibly there could be a discussion about using a feeding tube um, to help meet your nutritional goals with, when and if you're not able to take it all by mouth, or even just drinking an oral supplement. Sometimes this is part of your treatment plan. So again, a dietitian um, is here to help support you with these specific goals. And a dietitian can give you the calorie, protein, fluid goal needs that you have for your individual um, care plan. And we can also help modify diets, um, helping give ideas on how to make things work better for you and um, get those nutritional goals in. So again, communicating with all healthcare provider team members is so very important and we will do everything we can to help support you. So a thing that I hear a lot from patients um, is, oh, it's okay, I know I'm losing weight, but I have weight to lose, I'm fine, don't worry about it. And sometimes they, you know, I feel that patients, um, you know, don't really like to discuss that component. But what I want you all to know is weight loss during cancer treatment is very different than weight loss outside of cancer treatment. And we don't want you losing a significant amount of weight during your treatment. The reason why that is when you lose weight during your treatment, your body is actually more than often losing more muscle mass. And muscle mass is something that takes time to build. <clears throat> As we age, <clears throat> the amount of muscle mass we have decreases. And muscle mass, lean muscle mass is so very important. It is what gives us the, the strength that we need to do um, our daily activities, what we need to swallow, to breathe, to get up and out of a chair. So this is a very functional and important component of your quality of life. And so maintaining that lean muscle mass is 100% essential. You're also at increased risk for falls. There can even be an impact to your treatment plan. There can be deal a delay, um, especially for going through radiation. We don't like there to be significant weight changes. It can impact um, that initial treatment plan, and they may have to go back and redo the treatment plan based on weight loss. So we don't want anything that's going to delay your treatment. Um, so working with your healthcare team is one thing that we want you to do so that we can all support you. 
So a couple of things. If, again, if you're struggling by, um, with eating by mouth, we um, may need to modify some things. A lot of times patients will shy away from the thought of the feeding tube, but I try to remind them it's just as much of your treatment plan as the radiation and the chemotherapy. Um, we do know that patients who maintain their nutrition status through treatment do better than those who do not. So it's so very important that you can appreciate this as part of your overall treatment plan. Um, there are medications to help with side effects. If you are confused or unsure about how to take those, please talk with your healthcare team, specifically medications for constipation, diarrhea, pain in your mouth or with swallowing, and with nausea and vomiting. Um, these are important for you to bring into your um, daily life if the doctor recommends it and prescribes it as such. Um, but maintaining your hydration is essential. And we talk a lot about weight loss and getting in those calories, but hydration is just as important. Dehydration can increase your symptoms, such as nausea, dry mouth, fatigue, making you feel dizzy and at higher risk of falls. And things that are liquid at room temperature, such as water, milk, um, sports drinks such as Gatorade or, or Powerade, something like that, are completely appropriate. But sometimes if your mouth is very sore and tender, you may want to avoid anything that's acidic or spicy, especially carbonated beverages. It can in increase the pain in your mouth or in your throat when you go to swallow. So in general, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Treatments such as radiation can increase your fluid needs, so that might be something that you want to talk with your healthcare team about as well. Um, good hydration is so imperative, and um, so please understand what your needs and goals are so that you can go through treatment with as, as much um, information and knowledge as possible. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you, and please reach out to them. We are here to support you. It's better to do this sooner rather than later. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'm now going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was excellent and just wonderful information for everybody on the call. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is um, Ms. Amanda Hollinger. And Ms. Hollinger is Executive Director, Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. And they are a part organization on today's program. We're really delighted to be working with um, with the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. And Ms. Hollinger will be addressing the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance's free programs and services. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Hollinger. Thank you, Carolyn. I really appreciate the opportunity to partner with Cancer Care today. And I've also learned a lot from the guests that have um, been on earlier. So I wanted to share with you briefly a little bit more about our programs and initiatives. The Head and Neck Cancer Alliance is a nonprofit patient advocacy organization, and we really strive to be a one-stop source of resources and support for patients, survivors, and caregivers. Among our many programs are a peer-to-peer -peer support program, which is in partnership with Immerman's Angels, and that matches patients, survivors, or caregivers with mentors that have gone through a similar life experience. We also have an ambassador program where survivors or caregivers can share their stories by such means as speaking to community groups or at conferences, offering their perspective to those who are pursuing research, sharing their stories with medical or dental students, and more. In addition, we have an online support community with more than 11,000 active members and you can go there and join for free, and you can ask questions and share information. We also host webinars throughout the year, and we have a special focus on survivorship topics. Some recent ones that we've offered have included stretching and exercise, insomnia, intimacy, and we're hosting one next week on caregiver issues, and those are also archived on our website. We also have a clinical trial finder. We've talked quite a bit today about the importance of clinical trials, and that clinical trial finder allows patients to enter in their specific disease-specific information and their geographic preferences, and then match with trials that may benefit them. And on the prevention side, we host the Oral Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Program, which involves more than 200 sites across the country 
that participate in free screening again events uh, to get the word out about signs and symptoms, risk factors, and prevention. Our website also hosts a great deal of educational content, um, and we're frequently updating that, so we invite you to visit our website as well. And for more information about any of these programs or to get involved, uh, please feel free to email us at info at headandneck.org, or you can visit us on our website, www.headandneck.org. And I think my takeaway for today would really be to realize that you're not alone, that there are so many people going through this with you and have gone through this before and are there to provide help and support. And sometimes that is one of the best therapies that can be offered is just connecting with someone else. So thank you again for the opportunity today to share more about the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Hollinger. That was wonderful. And that's such a wonderful takeaway message to everybody to know that they're not alone and that they, indeed there are so many people that they can connect with. This is so important. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I just want to highlight some of our programs for all of you on the call today. Um, cancer Care is a national organization and we offer of, uh, actually, our, we, our staff are oncology social workers, about 35 of them, who offer a number of different services, and I'm just going to review them with you. Um, we do have a, um, a HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673, and one can call that number or visit our website at www.cancercare.org and post a question there as well. And um, our staff offers support, so basically people call and ask a question and uh, get support from our oncology social workers. We do offer as well online support groups. Um, we offer a practical and financial and co-payment assistance as well, and that's really, I know, much needed in this era today. Um, we also have some COVID-specific funds for people who are also struggling with other issues around the COVID and cancer. And um, we do offer case management services. So that means if we don't have a service that you need, we will connect you virtually. We'll take you to an organization that has the services that you need, and we'll take you there really by phone or online so we can get, be sure you're connected to the service, whether it be in your community or in another organization, and be sure you get that service. Now, so we won't just give you a list of places to call. We will actually take you there and be sure you're connected um, and, and be sure that your need is met. Um, in addition, we do have these type of workshops that we offer, 75 per year on different types of cancer. Um, we're very delighted to be offering this one today um, and uh, this particular topic. And we also offer publications, which is a snapshot of our services. Now, before we move on to the questions and answers, we just have a few uh, questions to ask you um, before we move on to the Q&A. And so I just want to um, start with our first question for all of you. And that question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of new surgical interventions, including plastic and reconstructive surgery for oral and head and neck cancers in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about new chemotherapy options, including concurrent chemotherapy and radiotherapy in the context of COVID-19. Again, one, the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for oral and head and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for oral and head and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, as a result of what I have what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in using and practicing the recommended guidelines and tips for care of 
teeth, gum, gums, and mouth before, during, and after treatment for oral and head and neck cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. And now we're going to have time, and it really helps us to better plan these programs. So really, um, the information you give us is just invaluable. And now um, we are going to move on to the questions um, and uh, the questions. And we're now going to take questions from our panel of experts. And I'm going to ask Michelle, to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Michelle, if you could um, bring our speakers on board and if you could explain how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And we have a question for Dr. Peterson from one of our online participants. So, Dr. Peterson, we have found that using fluoride during radiation causes burning and increased irritation of the patient's gums. Therefore, we instruct patients to not use the fluoride during treatment, but to start after completion of radiation. Your recommendations and thoughts about this? Yeah, thank you for the question. There are certain fluoride uh, products that uh, can cause the irritation uh, that was talked about, particularly when the mouth is very uh, irritated from, for example, the radiation uh, uh, that Diana mentioned as well. So the issue with fluoride is it becomes increasingly important after the cancer treatment ends. After the radiation has ended, the mouth sores heal and the mouth feels fine. That's the key time to start with the fluoride applications. These can be done at home and they can be professionally administered by the dental team, again, working with the cancer team as well. So deferring fluoride during radiation is uh, acceptable based on the latest evidence. The key is, though, to work with the dental team after the radiation ends and make sure that the fluoride uh, begins if, if, if that's the recommendation. Awesome. Thank you. And um, another question for you, Dr. Peterson. Um, how can I prevent dental or oral side effects before commencing treatment? The best way to prevent the side effects is, again, as part of the initial evaluation for the cancer and the treatment plan for the cancer, once the dental team knows that, then there are very good, high-quality uh, international guidelines that we use to guide our recommendations on protecting the mouth uh, before and then during and in the years after the cancer treatment. So the key is to get that initial comprehensive oral examination, allow the dental team to coordinate the decision making with the rest of the cancer team so that we can bring it back to you, discuss the advantages and the limitations. Uh, that's the key. And then we work side by side during and after your cancer treatment as well, once again, to ideally prevent any of these side effects in the mouth. And another question for you, Dr. Peterson. I have, and probably also for Ms. Bearden, but I'll have Dr. Peterson start. I've seen quite a bit of evidence that the use of honey during radiation treatment helps to reduce the severity of oral mucositis. What are your thoughts on this? Interesting question. There are several what we'll call uh, complementary medicine, complementary agent techniques that have been uh, reported in the literature, and honey is one of them that's beginning to uh, emerge as a possible uh, agent to help with the mouth sores. It's, it's not going to prevent the mouth sores, and in many patients, and uh, Dr. Bearden had an excellent point, but each patient is a little different on this, um, Typically, honey is not used based on the state of the science, but there is literature beginning to emerge that, you know, it may find its place in the future. So I, I can't speak against it. It's not a, a bad thing, but I think more research needs to be done. I'm interested in hearing uh, Ms. Bearden's uh, insights as well. Okay. Ms. Bearden, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I totally in, echo exactly what he was just saying about you know, there's a lot of information that still needs to come forward about um, how effective it can be. Again, it's not going to prevent it, but it may or may not help um, ease some of the discomfort. There are some things you can do um, that we do know some people find very helpful, 
And um, that's with using, there's some medications you can use to help numb some of the discomfort that you can get from your healthcare team um, that is really useful in helping um, the irritation and allowing you to eat and consume fluids with less pain. It's a lidocaine solution that you can swish around your mouth and spit out. There's even one that you can swish and swallow um, to help um, with that discomfort. Again, there is no way to prevent the sores from developing. Um, there's also information about glutamine, um, which you can talk with your healthcare team about. Um, there's, they're using that a little bit more often in the healthcare setting to help with the discomfort and, and irritation in the mouth. But again, it's, it's in response to the, um, the pain. It's not going to prevent the pain from happening. It's, that is um, oftentimes just a result from the treatment. But again, everybody's different in how um, extreme that may be. Um, it may be milder for some and more for others. So, um, but that's a great question. I think there's a lot of new information coming out. We just need to um, know more about it before we can recommend it with a clean, you know, a clean mind and a clean heart around that. And this will be the last question, and this will be for Dr. Peterson. Are there dental professionals who specialize in treating the cancer patients, or would the patient's regular dentist do the initial and or follow-up visits? Yeah, and speaking of the team, which we've been uh, trying to uh, hopefully uh, emphasize throughout our discussion here, um, what we do on the dental side, if I can put it that way, I'm in an academic health center. I'm in our cancer program in School of Dental Medicine at uh, UConn in Farmington, Connecticut, USA. And we work side-by-side -side with the patient's community dental provider because I'm reminded that I spend most of my time working in the oncology world and following the literature and, uh, you know, helping conduct some of the research that we've been talking about as well. Um, and I have to remember that my community dental colleagues are, are, are not in the academic position that I am and vice versa. I'm not in their position. So what we do is we coordinate our care and our recommendations. And if the patient has a community dentist and that dentist has questions about, um, uh, you know, the basis for which treatment plan and how the cancer treatment is going to affect the mouth and vice versa, uh, they talk to us and we talk to them, and then again, the patient is at the center of that. And so whether it's in an academic center or in a community practice where the dentist is working with us in an academic center, uh, those ideal outcomes, uh, those are, that's our goal, and we'll work side by side in that way. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, this has been a phenomenal program. I want to thank our speakers. You've just been amazing, um, just an amazing uh Really, we've done this program for a number of years, but I would say this one by far is really just extraordinary, and so I, I want to thank everybody. I do recognize that many of you have many more questions in queue, and that indeed, um, so I do want to recognize that for one thing. And then I also um, want to let you all know that even if you asked a question or if you have a question that you didn't get to ask, or if you um, or if even or if you even got to ask a question or still have a question that you want to ask, I would ask you to take it back to your treating healthcare team. I think um, I think um, Dr. Peterson and the entire all of the speakers today have stressed the importance of the team. So you want to take your question, what the, your question, even if you got to ask a question, take the information you learned and also take the information you learned from the program today back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best and they can also weigh in on you know your um, you know, your, um, you know, weigh in on, on their response to the question as well. Um, and I think the point was made by Ms. Hollinger that, of course, we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support and that we are all um, here to help you. And basically, um, so there are a lot of resources for you to access. We will be sending you a survey monkey evaluation at the end of this program today, and that um, evaluation will um, uh, provide all of the, uh, any of the information that we provided on the call today in terms of just um, uh, websites or links that we may have mentioned, phone numbers that we want you to have so that you can access that information as well as, of course, your healthcare team. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.